But at one point, he realized something very fundamental and remarkable, which is if you switch the fathers and sons and you plot the son's height as the independent variable and the father's height as the independent variable, you get the same thing. You get the same fuzzy thing and you get the same correlation. And so correlation is something that is completely independent of causation. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bit.ly.com forward slash a-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is a mathematician turned science writer who has written for a variety of popular science magazines over the last two decades. He's earned a PhD in mathematics from Princeton University and taught math for combined 13 years at Duke University and Kenyon College. But through it all, he never felt like teaching was his true calling. So he returned to his childhood love, which was writing. He since transitioned to the science communication program at UC Santa Cruz and has written books such as The Big Splat or How Our Moon Came to Be, The Universe in Zero Words, and co-authored The Book of Why alongside Udaya Pearl. His writing has been included in the New Scientist, Scientific American, and Discover magazines. And when he isn't writing, you can find him volunteering at his local animal shelter or playing chess. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, a man whose job it is to get free lessons from the smartest people in the world and then write about them, Dr. Dana McKenzie. Dana, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come onto the show today. I really appreciate having you here. Thank you so much, Harpreet. This is a great opportunity. I feel in many ways we kind of have a similar job because I get free lessons from yeah. smart people mm -hmm. like you. I get to read yeah. books. I get to talk to them about their books and I don't necessarily write about them, even though I'd love to up my writing skill, but we get to talk about them. And today I'm really excited to talk to you about some of the work that you and Dr. Pearl did for the Book of Why. But before we get into that, let's learn a little bit more about you. Talk to sure. us a bit about where you grew up and what it was like there. Sure. Well, I was born in Tennessee and uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, and grew up in the South. And people always are a little surprised to hear that because I don't think I have any shred of a Southern accent anymore. But I lived in a bunch of places when I was growing up. I also lived in Indiana, Virginia, then went to school in Massachusetts and college in Pennsylvania, and then graduate school at Princeton, as you mentioned. So, so I kind of lived all around the, the East Coast, Eastern half of the country for my childhood. And so you, you mentioned, you know, this big transition in my life that occurred in mid-1990s when I was about 37 or so, when I changed careers and also as a change of location. I moved out to California, which was a place I never thought I would live in, you know, and but I've now lived here for close to a quarter of a century and 
longer than I've been anywhere else. And so, so now I really feel like a Californian and, and I love being in Santa Cruz, which is a home of lots of creative and, and amazing people. So. Yeah, absolutely. I love Santa Cruz and being a native Californian myself mm-hmm. at the first quarter plus century of my life there. It's mm-hmm. one hell of a place, man. Santa Cruz is one of my favorite places for sure. So you, as a kid, you loved writing, but then you ended up studying math at like the highest yeah. levels. Like, yeah. was that something that you foresaw happening? Were you always into math? Was it like a choice between math and writing? Like, how did this play out? Well, that's, you know, that's a, a great question. And, you know, a lot has to do with my parents who encouraged me in, you know, all spheres of academics, but particularly my father was very interested in mathematics and he would do things like give us math puzzles. And, you know, I didn't actually need a lot of persuasion because I just also fell in love with math from, from the beginning. But I remember one story I like to tell, which is that when I was in second grade, my father one day asked me, how many ways are there for my class to line up to go to lunch? And there are 22 kids in the class. And so I thought, oh, well, 22 ways. Then he sort of kind of laughed. And then my sister, who was actually younger, but a little bit smarter than me, said, oh, no, 44. And then, you know, then my father explained to us about factorials and the fact that there's this incredibly gigantic number of ways, 22 times 21 times 20 times 19 and so forth. So I thought this is like incredibly wonderful. I mean, these huge numbers just, you know, made me so excited. So I decided I was going to work out 22 factorial. Now, the trouble was I didn't know how to multiply yet numbers longer than one digit. Because in second grade, we'd only learned the times tables for one-digit numbers. And so, so basically, you know, I could multiply one times two times three times up to nine, but then after that, I was stuck. But I, I knew that multiplication was the same as repeated addition. And so you know, once I got to multiplying by 10, I just listed the number 10 times, and I added them up. And then I have to multiply by 11. I list that 11 times, add them up. And so you can imagine how long this, and I'm sure I made zillions of mistakes. But finally, you know, by the last day of school, I actually got an answer, which was probably wrong. And sad to say, I don't even have it written down anywhere, what I came up with. But, you know, to me, this is just sort of a, you know, indication of how weird I was from an early age. <laughs> but I just loved things that were mathematical. And, and, you know, all my father had to do was tell me what a factorial was, and then I was off. You know, and so I did always love mathematics. And I think the writing came maybe a little more from my mother. So she encouraged me on that. And in fact, when I was as young as five years old, I would write stories and she would type them up for me in a little book. And I still have a couple of these little books of stories that I wrote. So, so I like to tell people my first you know, published book was written at age six called The Littlest Inchworm. And so I think that I just grew up in this family that encouraged learning in so many different ways. And, and so, you know, I loved all my subjects. I loved math. I loved writing. And it was really hard for me to, to really decide in school, what do I want to do? Because I liked all the courses. But, you know, I, I think that this love of mathematics did win out. And partly because there was a, a clear career path, you know? you know, I could see myself going to graduate school in mathematics and and becoming a teacher, and it sounded fun to me, something I'd like to do. So I kind of, you know, and I also sort of fell into it by path of least resistance. You know, I did great in all my math courses as a math major and, and got so much encouragement from my teachers. 
So, you know, in some ways, you know, in college, you don't know where you're going yet in life. And, and so you just do what your teachers tell you to do and other students, people you admire do. And, and so, so math just seemed like the natural thing to do for me. And whereas writing, writing was something I did for fun, you know, it wasn't really a career. At least I didn't see it that way. And it, it's too bad. And one thing I'd love to do is anyone listening to this podcast who's thinking of writing is a wonderful career path. And it's, it's a great way. Do you feel like you're a generalist? You know, you're, you're interested in everything. Our academic system doesn't like that. You know, you, you're forced to specialize. You declare a major. And then you go to graduate school and you get even more narrow, narrowly focused. And basically to get a PhD, you need to become the world's expert on one little thing you know, that nobody else maybe cares about. So everything in our educational system is saying specialize, specialize, specialize. But if you feel like you're a generalist, generalist at heart, being a writer is the way to be a generalist. You know, what I do is I, I get stories, you know, get ideas for stories. I'll interview the people. I'll interview several people. And I just have to learn really quickly what's going on in this subject that maybe I've never studied before. I need to be able to pick it up quickly and then write something at a level that ordinary people like me will understand. And so if, if you're a generalist, being a writer, a journalist is just the, the, the greatest thing. I'm so glad I found it, but it took a long time to find it. Yeah, that's, that's really awesome. And I'm, like, I consider myself to be a generalist and I think, yeah. not to say that I'm against specialization, but I'm definitely pro-generalization. I think yeah. that that is the way you should be. You should just be interested in a wide variety of things. And I feel like I kind of get to exercise that generalist type of thing with the podcast is talking, yeah, to, you know, talking to a bunch of people, having to quickly read through their book and, and absorb some of the main concepts and then talk to them about that. But I don't know, man, like something like writing, like, like it's something I could see myself doing, but I find it so difficult to do. And I don't know if that's because I just can't think clearly enough to get the idea across simply or, or what it is. But I mean, if anybody that's that's listening out there wants to kind of develop and flex this writing muscle, do you have any tips for them on how they could develop and cultivate this skill? That's a good question. So certainly one way to learn to write is to write. And there's there's just no way around that. And the more you do it, the, the better you get at it. So I did go, as you mentioned, on a formal science communication program at UC Santa Cruz when I decided to change careers. And this is, it's a one-year program, very innovative, the first of its kind, still the best of its kind. And it's amazing if you, you know, look at the world of science journalists, probably you know, a good quarter to a third of the science journalists out there came through the Santa Cruz program. You know, it's really, really incredible. So a lot of what I learned, I, I you know, sort of formally, I learned from that program. And we learned skills like how to pitch a story. We learned, well, we started with, we started the fall semester with, with news writing. How do you write a newspaper type article? And it's kind of a, that's kind of a funny thing because I don't particularly enjoy writing in that style. Uh, news articles are very condensed and very superficial, which is, when you're writing about science, it's hard to do. You know, uh, you, there are many things in science that that just need a little more explanation. So most people who go through the science communication program don't go into newspaper writing, but it's a great place to start because that's what drives a lot of journalism and media in our country. Even today, even though we're now in a brand new world where we have podcasts and, and everything else, 
still it's the it's the newspapers that kind of pick up the stories first and well and of course tv tv is huge but that's the kind of world i haven't gotten into very much but uh anyway it's i think really good to start with newspapers because you learn how to distill a story to its essence you learn how to pick something up really quickly you know i did a, a internship at a newspaper i would be assigned a story in the morning and i'd have to file it in the evening and so you don't have much time and the the great thing about that is for the rest of your life as a journalist you can never say you know this is too quick for me you know because you have that experience of turning a story around in one day and so if they ask me to do it in a week yeah that's tough but i i've done that before i can i can hack it you know so um so i think that the program taught taught me stuff like that that was you can't really put in a book you know it's you have to experience it so just doing it takes the fear out of it yeah i think that's that's uh, a, a big aspect of succeeding as a writer yeah definitely we'll have to check that out because i mean this is something that that i do see myself doing is mm -hmm. you know, writing a bit more hopefully yeah. they have an online component to that program because i'd, I'd love mm -hmm. to check that yeah. out I think the, uh, what you're doing is incredibly important, though, because the world is moving away from print and moving mm -hmm. towards video and, and audio and, and multimedia. So I envy you. I'm kind of a dinosaur a little bit because I grew up in a world where there was only print and only writing. And so that's what's natural to me. It's what I'm good at. But if I were growing up today, I would certainly want to, to learn some of what you're doing. And I think the UC Santa Cruz program actually does. I think they have a fair amount of training now in in, in video and audio journalism as well. That's really cool. I mean, it, it, it's cool the fact that we can even write, right? I mean, evolution has been very, very kind to us. Yes, yes. A number of different abilities, you know, to the point where we can engineer our lives. But as you guys mentioned very early on in the, the book of why, it hasn't given those same endowments to say our or chimpanzee cousins. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so what is this this computational cognitive faculty that humans yeah. suddenly acquired that our chimpanzee cousins did not? Yeah, uh, that's a, a wonderful question. So so our book is about causation. And what Eudea argues is that humans are unique among all the species we know of in our ability to perceive the universe causally. Uh, and by what, what that means, there's a lot wrapped up in that but one thing is that we can for example make tools and tools are an expression of our ability to modify our environment the fact that we can we can envision doing something we can envision making a change in order to achieve a certain outcome that's something that very very few other species know how to do and there are some there's there are some that can there's some really interesting work on tool usage among crows, which is uh, kind of amazing that they can uh, actually, crows in uh, New Caledonia feed on termites, and they need to fish the termites out of the branches that they live in. And they actually will take a twig and they'll bend it so that they can reach in there and fish out the termites. So this is arguably a form of, of tool usage. And Yudei and I had a little bit of debate, you know, does this, um, how much does this translate to to some understanding of causality. But in the context of our book, this is what we call level two or rung two uh, causal understanding, being able to visualize an intervention and, and carry that out. 
Then even more interesting stage of causal reasoning, we think is unique to humans, is counterfactual reasoning. In other words, imagining worlds or universes that don't even exist. And this is the realm of imagination. And it's something that, that's unique to humans. It's something that we develop at a fairly early age. And I believe that we develop this through play. So when kids are playing, you know, they're, you think of what they're doing. They're like playing at being a princess or playing at being this, that, or the other. They're thinking, what if, what if I were, you know, a princess? What would it be like? And you act that out and you see some things are different and stuff like that. And I think this, this play is incredibly important for human development. And it's, it puts us in this frame of mind of being able to envision other worlds. As far as we know, no other species have this ability. And it's what enables us to, to invent things and to, you know, also to a lot of like to our moral understanding of the universe comes about this as well, because we do something and we regret it. And we say, I shouldn't have done that. If I'd only hit the brakes, I wouldn't have hit that animal and killed it or something like that. And um, so our ability to envision a world where something different happened, where we acted differently, uh, is, a, is a hugely important part of our, uh, of our humanity and of, of our understanding of the universe. Yes, that's, that concept of counterfactuals is, is quite, quite interesting. Thank you so much for, yeah. for talking to us about that. So yeah. like, why does it seem, I mean, at least to me, that, that statisticians haven't been able to wrap their heads around this, yeah. uh, this concept yeah. of counterfactuals? It's something really surprising. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of, you know, I imagine that, that for, for sort of the layman reader of our book, one of the weird, weirdest or strangest things, one of the hardest things maybe to, to persuade them of is the fact that, that science has been so blind to causation when it's something that's so natural to us. It's something that we acquire, as I said, in our earliest years of infancy. You know, we're constantly experimenting, playing, you know, or, uh, when your baby drops the plate on the floor, he's not being, you know, disobedient. He's trying to understand how plates and falling and floors and gravity work, you know. And so this understanding of causation is something that we develop at an early age. We understand if we drop the plate, it'll hit the floor and break. Why is it that scientists have abandoned this language? Why is it so hard for them to understand something that's so easy, that's so fundamentally human? So that's a very interesting story, and it's one I, that we tell in the book. So it really goes back to the very early days of science, uh, sorry, of statistics, uh, when Francis Galton, who was in some ways the inventor of statistics, was trying to get at questions like inheritance. So, I mean, he was very interested. He was unfortunately a eugenicist. Uh, so he was very interested in inheritance of intelligence. And, you know, does, does and, and not even just intelligence, but, but talent or, or, or uh, you know, excellence in some broad sense. To some extent, is this inherited in families? And he grew up in a family that had some very famous people in it, Charles Darwin, et cetera. He obviously would love to have been able to prove that, you know, smart people have smart children or that, that accomplished people have accomplished children. So he, he actually collected data for many years on, on people and, and their, their offspring. And, you know, intelligence is hard to measure. So he would look at simpler things like height. And what he discovered, not surprisingly, is that, that tall people tend to have taller children. But it's not perfect. 
you know, when you plot, you know, the heights of fathers and sons on the graph, you'll see a big fuzzy blob of, you know, you know, some tall fathers have really tall sons, but some don't, you know, and so it's not a perfect one-to-one, you know, correspondence there. And so uh, he came up with the idea of, uh, of association or correlation, which was a word that he invented. Uh, he actually called it co-relation. And then eventually it got sort of turned into this word correlation. And so he realized that there's a correlation between father's heights and son's heights. But at one point, he realized something very fundamental and remarkable, which is if you switch the fathers and sons and you plot the, the son's height as the dependent, independent variable and the father's height as the independent variable, you get the same thing. You get the same fuzzy thing and you get the same correlation. And so correlation is something that is completely independent of causation. So and this was like an amazing insight for him that you know you can what he called regress father's heights and son heights, son heights, or vice versa. And so in his early stages, this word regression, he had also invented the word regression, so which is still used in statistics, uh, although in a different meaning. He realized that the city had this sort of blob of data, and he realized that sons' heights, the, the, the sons of tall fathers, tall fathers are taller than, than average, but not as tall as the fathers in general. So, and he called this regression to the mean. He saw it as, and he thought that there was some, some actual physical process going on here that the, the, the genes of, of outstanding people are somehow getting watered down. And, and so in the successive generations, you regress towards the mean. That's why he used the word regression. And um, it's a very value-laden word, you know, which is an interesting story in its own right. But, uh, but then when he did this little thought experiment with the switching the fathers and sons, he realized that the sons, the, the, the tall sons have shorter fathers. And so which way is it going? You know, are tall fathers having shorter sons or are tall sons having shorter fathers? And he realized there's just no causation. There's no... There's, there's no physical thing going on that's making the, the son shorter or that's making the father shorter because he realized there's no way that the, that the height of the sons could be causing the heights of the fathers. So regression or association or correlation, whatever word you want to use, is a non-causal concept. And so, so once he had this insight, he sort of then said, well, we, you know, we have to banish causality of Forget about causation. This correlation is really what science is all about. And it's really what statistics is all about. And he was encouraged in this belief by uh, Carl Pearson, who was one of the other co-founders of statistics, who was, if anything, even more zealous anti-causation than, than Dalton was. Uh, and so between the two of them, they you know, they put together the mathematical foundations to statistics as a subject, which we still use today. And they did it you know, very well, but in the process, they expunged this concept of causation. They said, you're not allowed to talk about causation. And they viewed causation really as, as only meaning a deterministic form of causation, like, uh, like in Galileo or in, in, in Newton. You know, so that there's an absolute precise, you know, relationship, you know, uh, between 
like the orbit of a planet, you know, and or or dropping an apple and having it land. So so they took this very very limited version of what causation said, and they said, okay, but in public, you know, in public health applications or in in biological applications, that never happened. And you know, fathers never precisely determine heights of sons, and so this idea of causation is just not relevant to to the subjects we're talking about. So it took many, many years to get over this, this sort of restriction on, or this taboo on causation. And I'd love to talk more about that, but I, I'd like you to give you a chance yeah. to ask a question. So Yeah. And it seems like ever since then, people have been, have been uh, touting the slogan, correlation does not. Yes. Yeah. 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 Then, right? So you learn that in statistics 101, every statistics one book says correlation is not causation. Yeah. And they forget to tell you what is causation. They never tell you that. Yeah, yeah. Nobody ever and, talks and about it. So what that's what is what your day is all about is saying, I agree. Yeah, correlation is not causation, but causation is too important to throw out. It, it's part of how we perceive the universe and how we begin life. You know, from age two or three, we understand the universe in terms of causes and effects. And this, so we we shouldn't be throwing this out. And so, it's his genius to realize. Okay, look, there's something here that's worth preserving. And how can we talk about it? What are the mathematical laws that govern causation? And that's what you'll read about in our book. Yeah, I mean, I guess I still I, I don't get why these guys are so against causation. I, like, I don't I don't understand why. Like, why did it become so taboo? Do you? I don't, yeah. Do you think you can help me understand that? Because it's still so unclear to me. It's like is is causation just like something that's not scientific? Just because we see something happen? Yeah. Like, I, I don't I don't get it. Like, yeah, that's you know they well, you know. In fairness, causation is, has been a philosophical issue for millennia. Uh, you know, Aristotle, the ancient Greeks, were talked about causation, trying to figure out, and it is a slippery concept. Uh, it's, it's hard to define causation. And as a mathematician, I am comfortable with that. It's something that maybe non-mathematicians don't realize, but in mathematics, if you go to a geometry book, it'll never explain It'll never define what a point is or what a line is in Euclidean geometry. These are actually undefined terms, and they are defined, in a sense, through axioms, through describing how they work. Two lines always intersect in a point. You know, that's an axiom. And you, you say they work that way, and, then, and you have other axioms, and then from these you can prove new results about them without ever actually defining what a, a point is or a line is. And so we can take a similar approach to causation. And I think this is, again, Udaya's genius to say, let's get away from these enormous philosophical debates that have gone on for hundreds of years as to what is causation. Let's just describe how it works. And we know it's there. We know we can perceive the universe this way. Let's try to figure out rules for reasoning about causation and rules for taking data and saying and answering a causal question. Like, if I take aspirin, will it make my headache go away? So I, I'm not answering your question directly, but I think so step one is to acknowledge that it's a difficult question. Okay. The causation is is a difficult concept. And I think that you know, step two, I think the historical approach helps you understand that that statisticians were able to understand this idea of correlation because you can you can write a formula for it. You can take the data and it's just in the data. And so this this was actually the fatal mistake of statisticians that's been going on for a hundred years is to think 
what is all in the data. Whatever we need to know is in the data. And Yude is saying, no, no, causation is not just in the data. Causation, you know, data, like correlation is the lowest level of causation. It's what we call rung one, not really causation at all. <laughs> and uh, so uh, if, if you want to talk about causation, you've got to accept that there's something that's not in the data. Or, so what's not in the data is a story or a model for how that data came to be. And we call that a generative model. So to talk about causation, you, you need to put that in. And we have lots of examples in our book. I'll be glad to talk about some. Let me, let me just give you actually one example that I was just thinking about in the last couple of days. We have a chapter on paradoxes in our book which I think is probably a lot of fun for readers because um, it's, it's, it's not as hard. It's sort of fun to think about these paradoxes. And um, one of the paradoxes we write about is the Monty Hall paradox. And this is the paradox. You probably know about the game, Let's Make a Deal. And in this game, Monty Hall, who is the host, uh, would you know, let the contestants open a door. There are three doors. And there's a prize hidden behind each one of them. Two of them are worthless. Like, they're a goat. <laughs> and then the third one is something really cool, like a car. And so you're supposed to open a door. And so you open the door, you see a goat. Darn it. You know, oh no, wait. Uh, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm getting, getting, mis- he doesn't open. You, you pick a door, he doesn't open it. <laughs> Boy, sorry, I messed that up. Yeah. So you pick a door, pick door A, uh, he doesn't open it, but he opens one of the other doors, like maybe door C. And behind door C, there's the goat. And he says, okay, would you like to switch doors now? And so, well, should I go to B or should I go to A? And, and well, this sort of seems 50-50. I mean, uh, could be either one. So, and I picked A to begin with, so I'll stick with A. That's the way most people think, you know? So, uh, so they, they really figure it's a 50-50 chance, but people are stubborn and they like to stick with their original choice. So they'll stick with it. So what's amazing is that, in, in fact, you can prove that you should switch. So, in fact, your chances, your chances of getting the right one in your first guess were one out of three. And there's still one out of three. That opening that door has not actually changed anything. So it's a one-third chance that you had the right door, and it's a two-thirds chance that B is the right door. So, so this is this marvelous paradox called the Money Hall Paradox. It was written about in, uh, in a column called Ask Marilyn, which um, Marilyn Vosava had this newspaper column. She billed herself as the smartest person in the world because she had an IQ test of 190 or something like that. Who knows? I don't, I don't have an opinion on that. But anyhow, she had this, this newspaper column where people would pose puzzles and then, or she would pose puzzles and then she would give answers. And this was like the one puzzle that arose the greatest furor. Because she posted this, you know, she wrote about it, and then she said, you should switch doors. You have a two-thirds chance of winning. And, you know, absolutely, people went bananas over this. And statisticians went bananas. And they wrote in and said, you idiot, you know, you don't know anything about statistics and, and blah, 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 blah. It turns out she was right, and the statisticians were wrong. But what was really interesting about this paradox is that I don't think anyone has explained it in the way that Yudea has as a causal paradox. So the, uh, the answer really depends on what are the rules of the game. And there's a tacit rule here that the producers are following, which is that 
you make your pick and then they're going to open the door and they're not going to open the door with the car because then there would be no drama. There'd be no suspense. So they always pick a door. They know where the car is. They will always open the door that doesn't have the car. And um, so, so there's, you can actually draw a causal diagram that, that, you know, so your choice affects what door they open because they, they're not going to open door A, but they're also not going to open the door where the car is. And so there's two causal arrows heading into this variable of which door got open. So, so there's a causal diagram and you can actually use Udea's procedures for computing the probability and you come up with the, there's a one third probability that's behind your door and two thirds that is behind the door B. You could also imagine a different game where the producers don't actually care about whether it's a good show or not. And they just pick a door at random to open. And sometimes it's the door with a car. So in, in that world, which uh, I call this, let's fake a deal in the book. In that world, it doesn't matter. So the intuitive idea that it's either A or B is actually correct. And there's no benefit gained to changing. So, so the moral of this story is that the causal diagram matters. The, the generative process behind the data matters. And so whether, the fact that the producers know where the car is and pick a, pick a door that doesn't have the car behind it, that's one model. The, uh, the let's fake a deal model where they don't know and they just pick a door at random too, that's a different causal model. And what you do with the data depends crucially on which model you have. And so, so if you have let's make a deal, you should change. You should switch to board door B. If you're playing let's fake a deal, it doesn't matter. So the data will never tell you. Same data, different answer. And to me, that is... As, as great an example as any that that causal models matter and the generative model matters. Yeah, absolutely love that chapter in the book, Book of Why, guys. Go get this book. Definitely, this is one of the most highly recommended books from from people uh, that have come on my podcast. But yeah, that that chapter about paradox is one of my favorite ones. I had to read that one twice back to back because it was a uh, kind of mind bending stuff. Oh, in cool. That's uh, neat. I'm glad. Really glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. But fun fact about Monty Hall, he's actually, so I live in the city of Winnipeg. Monty Hall is actually from Winnipeg. He like grew up here and everything. And just not too far from my home, there's a street called Monty Hall Drive. Cool. That, was, that was pretty that's, that's great. Yeah. He did um, pretty well for himself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. I, I actually read an interview of him, uh, you know, when, I, when we were working on this book and nothing from the interview really got into the book, but it was sort of fun to read his take on this. And he was just so amused by the, the whole Monty Hall paradox thing, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so he's, and of course they didn't put any deep thought into it. You know, they just wanted a good show, you know? Um, but it's, it's just funny actually that the wanting to have a good show actually led them into this fascinating philosophical slash statistical problem. So, you mentioned it a couple of times. We kind of alluded to it, um, this metaphor for the ladder of causation. Yeah. So talk to us about what this metaphor is all about and maybe if you can walk us up the rungs yeah. of the yeah. ladder of causation. Yeah. yeah, so this is, you know, as I like to say, it's really the central metaphor in our book. Uh, so the ladder of causation, basically there's three rungs on the ladder that correspond to progressively more sophisticated understanding of causation and actually mathematically distinct questions. 
Um, so the bottom level is association. And that's where you just, that's the level of statistics. And it's the level of data where you just learn which things are associated with which other thing. And so like you could, for example, an owl learning to hunt learns that at this time of day, the mice come out and he doesn't know why. He doesn't know what's causing them to come out, but he knows that this is a good time to go hunting. So this is a, a level that many, many animals are at. And I would say also that machine learning is pretty much at, at this stage. So it's a descriptive level. It's where you see associations in data. So the second rung on the ladder of causation is intervention. And so that's where I was talking a little bit earlier about tool usage. So intervention is when you, you change the system. So you change the, the rules under which the data were generated. So a good example of this is in randomized controlled trials where uh, you will have a control group and you'll have a, a treatment group and you decide, you, know, you intervene to, to give the treatment group this drug while the control group will get a placebo. And then you, you see what's, what happens differently in the two groups. And uh, if you see a difference, then you say, you say possibly with extreme reluctance if you're a statistician that the drug actually caused the, uh, the, control, the, the treatment group to improve. So being able to talk about interventions, changing something about the, uh, the causal relationships is level two of, of the ladder um, of causation. As I said before, is already pretty unusual there's not very many species that we feel can use tools. And so it's a fairly special ability of humans. Then level three is the counterfactual level or the imagining level. And this is where you aren't just envisioning an intervention, you're envisioning a different world. So you're envisioning something that didn't happen and or that isn't the actual case. And you're asking what would be different about that world. And so there you have questions like, if I had taken aspirin, would my headache, or sorry, if I, had, if I had taken it, would the headache have gone away? Or if I hadn't taken it, would it not have? Uh, so that's a counterfactual question. And that's a lot of how we, uh, we learn about the world. And it's, uh, it's a great quote I, I, want to, I read just last year about counterfactuals, which you know, a guy named Jonathan Richens in Nature Communications said, Diagnosis is fundamentally a counterfactual inference task. So every time you make a diagnosis, you're saying, okay, you're saying if this person, okay, so I, I want to think of it. <laughs> Boy, it's tough to switch from talking off the top of my head to reading off a card. <laughs> so so uh, you, have, uh, you have a symptom. You want to know what disease caused it. Okay, so you want to say if this symptom were not present, then uh, I don't. I wouldn't have the disease, but because this symptom is present, then I conclude that, that I have this disease. So you're asking, given that I don't have the disease or the symptom, what's the probability that introducing this disease would cause the symptom? So that's what we call probability sufficiency, and it's it's tough. You, you need to have a <laughs> you need to have a formula to follow it. So that is a counterfactual inference. So you're saying. Given that I know that the that without disease I wouldn't have the symptom, what is the probability that introducing the disease causes the symptom? So that's probability sufficiency, and that 
requires you to have data about a counterfactual world where I didn't have the disease, but now I introduced the disease. So, um, so as this person was saying, diagnosis is actually a counterfactual inference. And there are other examples we, we could give. So you, I know you're going to ask me on, on your list of questions, you, we're going to bring up about uh, Sherlock Holmes. And again, so what a detective does is he works from effects to causes. And so uh, this is, again, this is called, yeah, this is induction. So it's funny. I was reading about Sherlock Holmes for this chapter, and a lot of people think that Sherlock Holmes was this great detective because he was good at deducing. That's what I thought as well, yeah. But it's the opposite. What a detective does is work from the, the effects and go backwards to the causes, and that's induction. And so what he, and what he would do is, is induce the possible causes, and then once you have the list of possible causes, you, he has a saying that, Elementary okay. dear Watson. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that that's okay. the one about once you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, is the you know, is the truth. So so here he's inducing what are the possible causes, and then he's saying, Okay, well, he deduces that this one could not have that this guy could not have been the murderer. And so the other guy, even though it seemed incredibly improbable at the beginning, the other guy must be the murderer. And so so that's, it's really a combination of induction and deduction, but the really interesting part is the induction, because that's, that's the creative part where you're figuring out what might have caused this. Um, and then the deduction is something you learn in math, you know? Yeah, so that was a long digression, but what was I trying to say? Yeah, so again, I was saying that, right, so what, what Sherlock Holmes is doing is, is very fundamentally causal, and in fact, refers to counterfactuals because you're uh, you're looking at hypothetical universe. Yeah, so the ladder of causation, if I remember right, like yeah. that first rung, that's all about seeing what we can see. Yeah. Right. In rung. Yeah, seeing and doing, doing. Right. Yeah. So yeah. So the the first two rungs are, are, are I think really interesting. I spend most of the time in the book on them, but yeah. So so the the, the first rung with association is the realm of seeing. Uh, if I see this, what do I expect? You know, if I see, you know, I'm trying to think of some like stock market examples, which you know, like if, if I, if I mean, stock market people are are full of this sort of thing. If we see the support is at a certain level, then we expect that the price is going to go up and stuff. And they'll they'll wave their hands at all this data, but that's it's all just association and it's not predictive. It's not causation. So, you know, I don't buy any of that. So that's, that's the seeing level. Doing is, is the level where you, where you change something. And so one example of doing in our book is we, we give an example. You own a, a grocery store and you sell toothpaste, you sell toothbrushes, and you ask yourself, uh, what will happen to the sales of my toothbrushes if I raise the price of toothpaste? And so there you're intervening, you're changing the price of the toothpaste. So you might go back into your, your data. You have data over you know, many years about the price of toothpaste and the price of, of toothbrushes and how many you sell under each circumstance. And so you might say, okay, well, it, it, I, I don't expect to hurt too much. You know, when, when toothpaste got more expensive, the sales of toothbrushes didn't change much. So 
But the difference is that that data was con con conducted under conditions of seeing. So it was observational data. Uh, you just saw what were the prices and the sales. But when you arbitrarily, when you do something and you change the price and your competitors don't change the price, then that's a different situation. So your previous data was maybe collected when the price, everybody's price went up. And so, okay, so of course it didn't hurt your sales. But now you're unilaterally changing the price, and so your, your sales are going to drop. So that's a, a, a case of where changing the rules changes the, you know, changes the outcome. And that Monty Hall example I gave you shows you why it's so important to know what the rules are. And the way you, the way you express what the rules are by, is by drawing a causal diagram. And you'll see zillions of causal diagrams in our book. If you change the causal diagram, you know, one thing I like about this example is you could think about another example where instead of running a mom and pop grocery store, you have like you're a big chain store and you're really the market maker in, in your city. And so if you're a store like that, you probably could raise the price of toothpaste and not have any bad effect. And in fact, all the other stores are going to copy you. So there's a different causal model where if you're the chain store, you set the prices or you, know, you, you control the market. Whereas if you're the mom and pop store, the market controls you. And so there's an arrow that's pointing in the opposite direction. And you can see that in the causal model. And the causal model tells you how to analyze your data. And it tells, so you can say, okay, with this model, I better be careful. I better not raise the price. With that model, okay, go ahead, I'll raise the price. So not in the data, it's in the model. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, the just the simplicity of these causal diagrams are really, really interesting. It's but some of the the different types of like you talk about the forks and you talk about colliders and you talk about uh, these types of relationships. Um, definitely check this yeah. out. Check this yeah, out. it's it's really cool and and it's actually almost it's almost fun. You know? yeah. Yeah. I think it is fun. You know, because you have these very basic steps with just three variables and. You know, you can, the simple relations, like you said, colliders, forks, mediators is the third one. And these three ingredients occur in every causal diagram. And, and more complicated diagrams are built up from these very simple ones. And if you understand them, you're, you're on the way to becoming a bona fide causal reasoner, which is cool. That's what we're after. Yeah. So talk to us about the, the gap between rung one and rung two. How is it that we can bridge that gap how can we get from yeah, one yeah, to yeah one? right so in the context of traditional statistics the way it's done is with uh with a randomized controlled trial so and that's i alluded to that earlier you know, talked about having a control group and a treatment group and it's very important for it to be randomized so that the so that there's the people who get the treatment are picked out of you know by a random number generator or whatever actually the guy who came up with randomized controlled trials, uh, R.A. Fisher, used to do it with cards. He actually used playing cards to, to randomize who got the treatment and who didn't. And the purpose of this randomization is actually to break the causal diagram. So, so you might suspect that, say, a person's socioeconomic status will make them more likely to take the drug or less likely or whatever. And you want to break that chain of causation, so you assign the drug randomly. So the whole point of, of randomization is, is to intervene and change the diagram. So under these circumstances, 
Uh, and then you also do double blinding and stuff so that no one knows whether they're getting the drug and the, the researchers don't know who's getting the drug and everything. So there's this whole methodology that's grown up around randomized controlled trials. And if you conduct such a trial, then, as I said, the medical and statistical establishment will cautiously let you talk about causation, although usually people will hedge their statements even then. So one thing, you're never allowed to talk about causation when you're doing an observational study where you're just looking at C data instead of do. So that's sort of the, the classic statistical point of view. If you do a randomized controlled trial, you can go up to level rung two. But Uday and I are saying are, is there are other cases where you can, you can get to rung two. You have to be able to draw a causal model. But if you have the causal model, there's many times you can use observational data to figure out the answer to your do question. And one beautiful example that Udaya discovered in the mid-90s, kind of the beginning of all of this, was the uh, example involving smoking. Okay, so we, we believe now that smoking causes cancer. And I, I have a, a whole chapter about this in the book, which I really am passionate about. So it was very, very hard for, for medical scientists to agree on the simple statement that smoking causes cancer because status, statistical methodology doesn't let you do that. You need to do a randomized controlled trial. But how can you possibly do a randomized controlled trial on, on smoking? You need to tell someone, for the sake of science, please smoke for 30 years and probably catch cancer, you know, get cancer from it. This would be extremely unethical and, and no one ever even dreamed of doing anything like this. So, but unfortunately, statistical, you know, mainstream statistics would not let you talk about causation without such a trial. And the thing they were worried about, and the thing that R.A. Fisher was worried about, R.A. Fisher, by the way, was a pipe smoker. So he had a little bit of vested interest in this. But his concern was that there was some kind of genetic factor that predisposes you to smoking and also predisposes you to cancer. And this is what statisticians would call a confounder. And, you know, statisticians have had an incredible hard time figuring out what is a confounder really. But anyway, so R.A. Fisher's argument was if you have this, this common, you know, this common cause, although you would not want to say that word, then you couldn't, you know, just because you have an association between smoking and cancer, you can't say smoking causes cancer because maybe it's this gene, this smoking gene that's causing both of them. So, uh, so that's called confounding. And what do you do about it? Well, so one thing you can do is if, if you have a confounder, you can collect data on it and you can control for that confounder. So in the example of socioeconomic status, for example, if you think that that's a confounder, you, you could collect data on the socioeconomic status and then you can reweight the data so that if you observe that the rich people are more likely to take this drug. You could say, okay, well, you know, I'll reweight the number of, of rich people in my study. So I, I will I'll weight the people who didn't take the drug a little bit higher because there are not as many of these people. And the people who did take the drug, I'll weight them lower. So this weighting procedure is very standard. It's called controlling for a variable, totally normal statistical procedure. But when you do this, your statisticians won't let you talk about causation. And there's another great quote felt for you 
This is from the Journal of the American Medical Association blog in 2017, uh, a year book, the year before our book came out. If it's a report of an observational study, then all cause and effect language must be replaced. So this is like an official position of the American Medical Association that you're not allowed to talk about causation in an article about an observational study. And this is even if you've done the controlling for confounding. And this is what Udaya and I are saying is wrong. If you have identified, if you've drawn a causal diagram, you've identified everything you could possibly imagine as, as a confounder, then you have the right, and I say you have the responsibility to say, this is causal. We've controlled for every confounder we can imagine, and there's nothing left. Okay, this must be causation. And the example I like to cite and do in the book uh, was a study of walking that was done in 1998. So these researchers had a data set of Japanese men in Hawaii. Some of them walked, you know, well, they, they had various exercise profiles, but some of them walked more than two miles a day. Others walked less than one mile a day. And they collected data on these two groups. And they found that the death rate among the people who walked more than two miles a day was about half the death rate of people who walked less than a mile a day. And they controlled for everything under the sun. You know, they controlled for, for drinking, they controlled for socioeconomic status, they controlled for overall health, which is a very reasonable thing to do because you could say maybe these people who walk a lot do it because they walk, they're healthy and so they can walk a lot. So definitely you need to control for, for, uh, for the overall health and you know, all the variables that you can come up with. So they controlled for everything under the sun and they still had a strong effect that the people who walked a lot still had almost half the death rate of the, of the people who didn't much. So, but they would not, they would, would not say that walk, that they said, and they specifically said, we cannot say what would be the effect of a program of deliberate exercise. So to me, this is just, um, it's, it's irresponsible. So here you have compelling data that regular exercise will improve your health and it will reduce your, your death rate. And if I, you know, if I go to my doctor, I'm going to ask him, doctor, if I exercise, will it cause me to have better health? Will it reduce my, my risk of heart attack? And I want him to feel that he can answer that and say yes. And instead, what the, the authors of the study are saying are you can't you can't say that. It's just association. To me, this is extremely an extremely important message that if you controlled for everything you can think of, then you should say that subject to this causal model, we believe walking will reduce your risk of heart attack. Because that's the information that patients want. And it gets back to the fact this is the way we organize our understanding of the world. We don't under organize. We don't understand what association is, but we understand if I walk, I will not have a heart attack or I will have a lower risk of heart attack. That's something, a message that we can understand. So I forget what your question was. Yeah, As no. I said, I tend to go on on these things, but that's, that's the, 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 the moral is, oh, I can't remember. You're asking about, about going from level one to level two. And so, so one way to do it is by controlling for confounders. Okay? So you need, to, you need to write down a causal model, identify what all the conceivable confounders are. If you believe you've done a conscientious job, then, then you have the right to say and the responsibility to say 
that A causes B. Here's the causal effect of walking on the risk of heart attack. Now, someone could come along tomorrow and say, you missed a confounder. Okay, and if that's true, then, then we have to admit it. We say, okay, we didn't see that confounder. The, the conclusion was subject to this causal model. Now we'll gather data on this confounder and we'll try to, you know, we'll tell you, you know, if we control for that confounder, is, do we still have this effect? But at least it's honest. You're saying, you know, that's another great thing about causal diagrams. They force you to be honest. They, you put down in the causal diagram, what do you think are the causes and effects? If you miss something, okay, you go back and you, and you redo the analysis. But it's better than, than not saying, you know? And uh, so, again, okay, so co controlling for a confounder is, is one thing. Now, one of the cool things that, that I wanted to get at with, with the smoking example is that in the smoking example, R.A. Fisher is saying that there's this confounder, it's the smoking gene. And guess what? You can't measure it because it's the 1950s and we don't even, we can't sequence the genome. You know, we, we've never even actually seen a gene. And so how can we possibly control for this confounder? Well, you can't, okay? And so does that mean then you're stuck? You can't say smoking causes cancer? Well, Udaya proved that the answer is no. In fact, one, one thing you can look for is a variable like tar deposits. So we believe that smoking produces tar deposits in the lungs and that those cause cancer. So if you, if you believe that, if you believe that causal model, okay, and furthermore, if you believe that, that the gene does not cause the tar deposit, which makes sense because how does a gene cause tar to accumulate in your lung? Okay, you can argue about this. And in fact, statisticians did argue when he pointed this out. But if you can find this intermediate, this mediator, tar deposit, and if that mediator is not affected by the confounder, then you can actually control for the confounder. And he, Uday derived a mathematical formula, which had never known, no statistician had ever seen before. Okay? And as he calls it the front door formula. And so, and if you have this, this, this intermediate variable, you can control for the, this hidden confounder, and then you can actually tell if smoking causes cancer. Now, there wasn't, you know, when he came out with this, as I said, there were statisticians who said, well, look, tar deposits could be caused by the gene because it could be an interaction of the genes and the, and, and the smoking. Okay, fine. All right. But the insight here that no statistician had ever had was that if you have variable X that you think causes variable Y, you're worried about a confounder. If you can find an intermediate variable Z that is not affected by the confounder, then you can actually get the causation. So this is an example of what I'm talking about, the, the sort of mathematical rules of causation. It's like we talked about the rules of geometry. You don't define points and lines, but you set down the axioms, and then you can make conclusions about them. And similarly, what Udaya did with the causal models was the same. He said, okay, if I can draw this causal model, I have this intermediate variable, I can get a conclusion from it. Don't need to spend thousands of years arguing what causation is. We just observe, here's the way it works. Here's what you can get from it. And uh, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's absolutely mind boggling to me. And you want to know why I want to work on this book. That's why, you know, it's, it's, it's a person who had this earth shaking insight and it's still 30 years later, still was having trouble getting accepted. And so that's why I wanted to write the book.
Um, and the good news is that it is, it is being accepted. Uh, so even since our book came out, you know, I read this quote from the American Medical Association. Two years later, after our book came out, uh, there's a, a study or an article in the Annals of the American Thoracic Society with 47 authors. And they said, the scientific, mathematical, and theoretical underpinnings of causal inference have evolved sufficiently to permit the everyday use of causal models. So to me, this is like, you know, it, it's like the, uh, the, the earth opening. So people are actually accepting causal models now. And this is so exciting to me to, to see that happening. Yeah, I'm excited to see this, you know, start being taught in, in grad programs and, and yeah. things like that. I think it's definitely some really interesting stuff. In and, that's what, yeah, and that's what Udaya wanted to accomplish. You know, he wants the education of grad students to change because he said, he, he, he always talks about this, you'll never change the mind of the older people, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the traditional statisticians. But if you can change, if you can teach the younger ones, the ones who are in graduate school, if you can expose them to these ideas, then within a generation, the whole landscape is going to change. Oh yeah, absolutely. And one, there's a couple of things that he talks about that both you guys talk about in the book, one of which is called the do operator. Yes. And yeah. I found that to be interesting. I mean, I was like, oh, it just looks yeah. like the conditional probability formula with a do <laughs> right. mixed into right. it. So what is, what is the do operator all about? What makes it so right. revolutionary yeah. and yeah. special? So, so the do operator is, you know, it's what we're trying to get at when, when we talk about going from level one to level two. So we're trying to see the difference between seeing and doing. Okay, so so the do operator will have a mathematical formula with it that looks just like uh, you know, look, like conditional probability, as you said. You know, you just have, you have the same vertical line and stuff like that. But the do operator involves modifying the diagram. So uh, you have your causal diagram. You want to see the effect of raising the price of toothpaste. So we're doing price equals $2 instead of $1. But I, I'm not getting it just from the data. I'm looking at the whole causal diagram. And okay, when I do the price equal $2, I am erasing whatever arrows lead into the price. So if, if the outside market is normally affecting my price, I'm the mom and pop store. So I, I follow what Walmart does. So if I unilaterally change the price, then I'm breaking that arrow. I'm changing, I'm mutilating the diagram, as Yudea says. So that's the do operator, erasing all the arrows going, going into that variable and then setting the value, value of that variable at a certain point and then working through the rest of the causal diagram to see what is then the effect on the outcome variable, which is sales. Okay, so, so you mutilate the diagram and then you use your data in the prescribed way you know, using the formulas we've we've Uday has developed, and you then figure out what is the outcome in that mutilated model. Yeah, and yeah, definitely check this this book out for more information on that. There's the do operator, and there's the whole do calculus behind yeah. it, which uh, right, that's which, right, which gives you the math formulas. You know? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's it's you know, you know, part of the value of this is just seeing the do operator, having a language for it, mm-hmm. because. That's what statisticians didn't have. And lacking the language for do, it makes it so hard to talk about causal, anything causal. Even the randomized controlled trials, ask a statistician, why does that let you talk about causes? You know, they, they won't be able to explain it. It's just sort of tradition. 
Yeah. So just having that word do makes a big difference. And then, of course, as you said, there is, in fact, the mathematical apparatus behind there. Yeah. And, and yeah, I spent five years of my career as a biostatistician. So primarily working on randomized control trials and, mm-hmm. and things of that nature, designing experiments. And uh, I found it interesting that with the do operator and the do calculus, you could eliminate the need for having to do a randomized control that's trial correct. and only resort to it if you actually have to. That is, that's correct. Yes. And so, I mean, that, that's earth-shaking for a statistician mm-hmm. to, to hear that. Yeah. You know, it's like against the entire orthodoxy of the subject. So, so that's what this book is about. Yes, you can. From observational data, if you have a causal model that you believe and you know, and if it's the right, if it is a model that lets you identify this this effect that you're trying to identify, then you can talk about what the, what is the effect. So yeah, it's it's um it's it's very big. Yeah. So we talked a bit about confounders, and you know, I've been confounded about confounders since my days as a biostatistician, partly because not a single one of my textbooks gives a consistent definition. Right. Yeah, that's right. Again, yeah, you know, phys- the, the statisticians know that confounding is the problem, and yet they can't say what it is. They can't agree on a definition of confounder. You know, whereas, you know, if nothing else, Udea's causal diagrams make it visibly, you know, all you need to be able to do is read a map, and mm-hmm. then you can tell that this is a confounder, and that isn't, you know. And that's also a nice message, too, because because statisticians don't know what a confounder is, they control for everything under the sun. They control for things you don't need to control for. And sometimes they control for things that take away the causal effect. So that's the cost of not having a, a, a clear definition of what a confounder is. And just, just in case anybody is wondering, like when you say control for, talk to us a bit about what that means just for, yeah. for labor. Well, that's, that's, that's this, um, this mathematical procedure I was talking about where mm-hmm. you reweight the data in order to take account of the fact that you're, this is, you, you have observational data, you haven't been randomizing, so uh, you can't control you know, who chooses the treatment and who doesn't. And so maybe people from a higher socioeconomic status chose the treatment preferentially, and so you have to reweight the data so that you give more weight to the people who are unusual, who aren't getting represented enough in the study, and less weight to the people who are getting overrepresented. So, yeah. yeah. And so, that's all classical statistics. We haven't changed any of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're just changing the interpretation. The why. <laughs> yes. Why are you doing that? The statistician won't be able to tell you why, because he doesn't have a word for why. doesn't have a word causation. The yeah. reason for confounding, for controlling for confounder, is you want to get at the causation, the causal effect. That's the only reason for, for the controlling. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, it was earth-shattering to me reading that in this book because yeah. I've been doing clinical trials for, you know, I'm not, I'm not a cl- clinical trialist anymore. I was for a while, but yeah, it was really, really yeah. interesting to see that framework. So there. now, you know, I, I should probably say there, you know, there are caveats and I'm a, I mean, I am a huge advocate of this, but one thing you can naturally ask is who determines what is the causal model? Mm-hmm. You know, what's the right causal model and what happens if people disagree? Right. And that, that is a problem. But that's exactly the sort of thing that, that you should be talking about. If, you know, you know, famous scientist A says this is causing that, and famous scientist B says, no, I think it's that, 
you know, some other thing or it's not this. That's the sort of thing you should be talking about. The causal model directs your questions to, to what's important. And Uday and I did an interview on another podcast. There's the science, science podcast you know, for Science Magazine, the only one we've done jointly, where you know, someone asked this, the, the interviewer asked this question, how do you determine what's the right model? And Uday gave this wonderful example. Sorry, this wonderful answer. He said, by argument. Yeah. And that was all he said. And, and I just thought that was so wonderful because, first of all, Udaya loves to argue. That's him in a nutshell. And I think it's part of his upbringing. You know, I think it's, it's part of the, the Jewish tradition is to argue about things, about you know, the, what, does, what does the Torah mean by this and that and the other. So it's, I think part of, part of his nature is to love an argument. And it's what science is about. You know, you're, when you're arguing about what are the causal effects, you're arguing about the important thing. And so it's okay. It's okay if you can't agree. You know, then maybe you can do experiments. You can start, you, know, you can try to gather data and so forth. But you shouldn't paper over that disagreement. The, what the models are doing is bringing out what the disagreement is so that then you can maybe address it and, and then by argument actually solves the problem. So it may be then that you won't be able to use Udaya's do calculus to answer your question because you're not agreeing on the model. That's okay. That's what science is about. You know, mm -hmm. you got to then experiment, go to the lab, see if you can agree on a model. And then once you do agree, then you can, you can use Udaya's causal calculus. Speaking of arguments, I feel like Bayes' theorem tends to divide people in a philosophical sense. People have been arguing about that for, for a while. Talk to us about you know, a couple of big objections that people have uh, yep. about Bayes' theorem. You guys, you guys spent a fair amount of time talking about Bayesian stuff in the book, and, and I like that. Yeah. Bayesian yeah. stuff. So, um, so one thing I, I think is that Bayesian statistics is less controversial than it once was. Um, so you know, Bayesian statistics was like a, a revolution before the causal revolution. I mean, so, so it, it used to be also very much, you know, heterodox, you know, and uh, now I think that you go to a school meeting and you won't see the arguments that you once did over Bayesian versus frequentist, the other main category. So, but it took, that took a long time too. And uh, with causal, the causal revolution, we're, uh, we're at an earlier stage. But anyway, the, so Udaya came from the background of Bayesian statistics and it, in fact, uses a lot of Bayesian tools. Uh, the, the sort of the nuts and bolts, the mathematical details are all Bayesian statistics. Uh, so what is Bayesian statistics? The idea of Bayesian statistics is that the, the probability is reflecting a degree of belief. So when you say, what's the probability that I'll have a heart attack if I take this drug? So it's, it's a degree of belief, whereas in classical frequentist statistics, it's a percentage of time. So you have, you know, 100,000 people in your population and you give them this drug and 20,000 have a heart attack. And so that means the probability was 20% okay, for, for them. So there are many troubles with the frequentist approach. One is that there's only one me. I want to know my chance of having a heart attack. I don't care about those other 100,000 people. So, but putting that aside, what were the problems of the Bayesian point of view? So the Bayesian point of view is that this is a degree of belief. And 
what Bayesian statistics lets you do is update that degree of belief in the light of new evidence. So, and there's again a, a straightforward mathematical procedure for doing that. And so the, the trouble is that where do you start? Okay, so uh, I said Bayesian statistics lets you update your degree of belief, but what's your degree of belief to begin with? And so you might initially begin by believing your risk of heart attack is 20%, but um, you know, how do you know? And so that's been that was one of the sticking points for, for many years, is that it seemed Bayesian statistics required you to make a subjective statement right at the beginning. My original degree belief in this is X percent. And Unfortunately, science has this mythology that it's supposed to be 100% objective. You're not supposed to have any subjectivity in science. This is kind of another thing that we've really been instilled with in, in our training. So it's very difficult to persuade a scientist that no, you have to have a subjective degree of belief here. Uh, so that's, that, that's one uh, sticking point. Now there are various ways around this. And uh, one is to take what are called uninformative priors. Uh, and this is a jargon word I'm sure you've heard, many of your listeners have heard. So you just kind of like that there's uh, five possibilities, you, know, you just assume each one has equal probability, something like that. So, you know, still it's this question whether that really gets around this subjectivity problem, but that's one way it's, it's dealt with. I think a better way though, is to realize that science does have subjectivity and this, this also is part of the way we, we process reality. And uh, we start, you know, we might start by, by adamantly believing something's not true, but then we see lots and lots of evidence and eventually we are persuaded by that evidence. And um, so that's how human reasoning works and that's how science ought to work too. So, so I think that scientists should admit that, that, they are, that they have subjective priors. That's a whole other debate. Um, then another, you know, another objection people had to uh, to statistics or to Bayesian statistics was uh, whether degree of belief really is expressed by probability. You know, is do I believe this? I have a chance, twenty percent chance of heart attack because I've observed it a hundred thousand times. Well, no, no, I don't think I have done that, and so. So there must be something else going into this degree of belief. So, so that's a, really an issue for, for philosophers. I, I sort of feel as if I have maybe less patience for philosophy than Udaya does. Like, uh, I feel like you could talk about it till you're blue in the face. And you know, I think that in the end, Bayesian statistics is a set of rules that lets you deal with, with degrees of belief using the laws of probability. It is a consistent, uh, mathematically consistent, framework for, for doing that. And if you don't believe that degrees of belief are probabilities, okay, then don't use Bayesian statistics. But I think you're, you're, um, you're missing out on something very useful. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I, for one, I feel like, you know, math and statistics and philosophy, I feel like we need to instill more philosophy back into our training as, you know, mathematicians and, and statisticians. Like, like just a little bit more because like, yeah. back in the days they were yeah. all philosophers, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, uh, all science was natural philosophy in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's right. So one thing I really admire about Udaya is that he takes the philosophical debates about causation, about Bayesian statistics very seriously and knows a lot about them. 
So that I think is really cool. There are not very many scientists that do. And you know, we talk about Hume in the book and stuff like that. So it's it's good to to recognize that these questions have been around with us for around us for a long time. And um, we have to respect what other people have have said about them. So let's do a last formal question before we jump sure. into a real quick what I like to call the random yeah. round. Sure. Uh, and it's this. It is 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for? Wow. So, yeah, certainly in, in the context of this discussion, if my work made Judea's really revolutionary insights more mainstream, more understandable, I would be thrilled with that. And, you know, so if causal models became part of the standard the standard practice in science and statistics, that would be great. And then if it actually mattered, if it made a difference, that would be the best thing of all. Um, so, you know, one thing we haven't talked about, I know you wanted to, was uh, the role of, of causal models in machine learning. And, I, you know, I strongly believe that any artificial intelligence to live in a world with humans is going to need to be able to think causally with causal models. And so right now, machine learning is still at rung one on that ladder of causation. We need to get it up to rung two and rung three. So if a hundred years from now, we really do have strong artificial intelligence, then to me, that can only come about if that intelligence is using causal concepts. And so I would be delighted to have had a, a tiny, a tiny, tiny uh, role in, in that process. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm definitely looking forward to using some of the stuff laid out in this book at the first opportunity that mm-hmm. my work presents itself because um, it's fascinating stuff. I'm l- looking uh, for ways to apply this. So so thank you so much for for contributing to that and writing the book. And I'm sure you guys will definitely, 100 years from now, when uh, statisticians have changed their viewpoint, they'll, they'll be referring to, to this book as that's the reason why. <laughs> So yeah, let's jump into the real quick random round sure. here. So what are you currently reading? So I am currently reading a book called Tears in Amber. I, I hope that's the name of it. So this is, I, I, I literally got this book because it was a free Kindle book. So I, I, I am a subscriber to Amazon Prime and you get a free one free book a month. There's like a list of, of eight books each month they pick and usually... Usually I'm not interested in any of them, but this month there was uh, this book called Tears in Amber, which is a novel uh, about basically about families, women and children who were caught up in the World War II German families and the effect of the war on them. And the Tears in Amber refers to the fact that uh, this is taking place in East Prussia, which I didn't even really know where it was, but it's on the Baltic coast. And uh, I guess that amber is is a sort of a jewel that's amber washes up on the on the beaches there and and uh, mm. turned into jewels and stuff like that. So so that's one of the world's big sources of amber is the Baltic Sea. Um, anyway, so what I, I I really like this book. Otherwise, I'd make some <laughs> some other answer to your question, but uh, I'm not done with it yet. What's really interesting to me is that that seeing the the very profound negative effect of war on these and, and, and the way that the German people were actually victims. Uh, and 
this is kind of unfamiliar territory for me because I've always seen the Germans as the the offending party that you know that they caused the war they you know they deserved it you know or something like that what happened but you know you read the story of these women and children they did nothing to deserve what happened to them or if they did anything to deserve it it was no more than the rest of us deserve you know adverse consequences for belonging to societies we belong in i mean they they were in a society that made it impossible to not subscribe to uh, to, to this warped system of beliefs, and they didn't want to have, you know, they resisted it, but they were powerless in some ways. And then, you know, when they lost the war, the entire what the book is really good at is showing how complete the collapse of society is, and it just it just makes you realize how, you know, in every war, women and children are victims, and you know, to say they deserved it because they were the Nazi aggressors, I, I think is, is is too um it's 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 too pat or too uh too too something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So so this 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 uh this book really opened up something that I hadn't hadn't really thought about before. And um you know, I think that I, I often think, oh, they deserved it and and I really shouldn't be thinking that. Definitely have to check that one out. I've got Amazon Prime as well. So hopefully in Canada, we get the same selections. What... That's the one for April. So it's probably uh, not free anymore. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. What uh, song do you have on repeat? Yeah. Uh, this is, you sent me the list of questions in advance. This is hilarious because I'm from an older generation than you. And so I don't even know what it means to have a song on repeat. Um, <laughs> So it's like, I mean, I assume it means I'm listening to a lot of stuff, but you know, maybe you have a playlist that you, I, yeah. I, so I don't know what it means, you know, and, uh, but um, so, so I'm generally, generationally handicapped. So, okay. So first of all, I, I, I'm not listening to as much music as I used to, and, and I feel really sad about it. I don't really know, well, I'm not listening to the radio anymore, and I don't really know where else people go to, to find the music they like. Uh, so sometimes I'll look for stuff on YouTube, and, and I think that's one route that people find. But um, but actually, you know, the two songs most recently that that I like the most, I I found out about them because I read about them. So mm. uh, which is you know, here I am, a, a person, you know, a creature of the printed word. You know, I, I read an article at the end of last year about best songs, you know, night of two thousand twenty. And there are these two songs I read about that sounded interesting. One of them was John Prime's I Remember Everything. That was the last song he recorded before he died of COVID. Oh. And, you know, Prime was a guy, I, I'd heard some of his stuff. Not a huge Prime fan, but, you know, I, I kind of liked him, you know, and he's very irreverent. And that's something I liked about him. And uh, so, you know, so I, he was one of the, you know, probably the first, you know, person I who died of COVID that I knew. Oh, I know who that person is. And I've listened to his songs and stuff, and uh, so that was a little bit of a wake up for me. So I so I listened to this this song. And it's it's a great song, and the the last line is is, is just fantastic. Uh, I won't spoil it for you by by revealing it, but it's it's just great. It's the for the last song of your career and the last line you sing to be this one. It's just fantastic. So. So that was one of the two songs. And then the other one is its total opposite. So I read also about the song called The Blessing, 
And it's, it was, I, I don't listen to Christian music, evangelical music, but it came out of that milieu. And um, it, it was this, it's this basically very devotional song. All the words uh, are from the Bible. And it's basically saying, you know, may the Lord bless you and, and be with you and, and your children and their children and their children for a thousand generations. And uh, it's, it's, it's you know, very inspiring words. And uh, so I listened to the song and I'm like, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very simplistic song. But then they just get more and more into it and more passionate. And I just really loved the song by the end. And what I really loved was these, the words uh, they sing, he is for you. So they're talking about God, of course. He is mm -hmm. for you. And I don't know. I, I'm not really a Christian, never paid that much attention to the Bible. I've never had someone say, God is for me. You know, it's like I'm supposed to be for God, you know, like, you know, for to be a Christian. And this is saying God is for me. And that really, that, surprised me you know and that's so it was such a great line anyway so i, I love those two songs one is you know just a, a guy with a guitar one guy with a guitar totally irreverent you know just a you know dry sense of humor the other one is this chorus of passionate religious people who love their god and who are trying to tell you i want our god to bless you forever and ever and all your generations to follow you and it's just so moving and in such a complete opposite way. Uh, so uh, so those are two great songs. And I, I love listening to them both. Definitely check check uh, check them out for sure. So let's go to a random question generator. We'll do a All couple right. of uh, so, yes. uh, couple of questions off of this one. First question is, what is one of your favorite comfort foods? Comfort foods. I like chocolate cake. Nice. <laughs> so and, uh, and I recently discovered it's really good to follow the chocolate cake with peppermint tea oh, because right. then you get the taste of chocolate and the taste of peppermint at the same time. And it's, it's just really a, a great mixture. I'm about to try that one because I like both chocolate and peppermint. So what have you created that you are most proud of? Well, you know, the book of why, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I can't give a better <laughs> answer than that. Who inspires you to be better? Okay. I'll tell you something. I, my other hobby besides chess is hula dancing. And I started this fairly recently, actually, well, 15 years ago, not that recent. And I'm inspired by my fellow hula dancers. So um, this is a group of all women except for me, and mostly older. They're mostly in their 60s and 70s. And I just love their way of looking at the world, you know. And one thing that I really like is that in this group, Everyone supports everyone else and really cares about how other people are feeling. And this is something that I sort of hadn't really seen to the same extent in any other groups I've belonged to. Uh, but, you know, in this Hula group, if somebody's feeling depressed, down about something or other, which has certainly happened a lot in the last year uh, because of the pandemic, other people will come to, to their aid. You know, they will. They'll try to say something to make them feel better. And you know, the, the group as a whole will not proceed unless everybody in the group is, is together. And uh, I just think that's so admirable. And um, I even wrote a little essay about it that I haven't published anywhere. But uh, just saying for, for men like me, it's really good to join a group, 
some sometime where women call the shot. Mm-hmm. Just look, just participate, just and don't dictate, just see how they do things. And it's just really different. It's gentler and it's more considerate. And uh, I just think it, it's, it's really, really inspiring. Yeah, it's really cool. I really like that. We definitely have to get in on some type of uh, hula dancing. I could, I could use some movement nowadays. Hula, yeah, it's, 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 yeah it, it's, it's great. You know, for actually for older people like me, I'm getting there, you know, uh, it's really good form of, of activity and exercise because it's very low contact. You know, it's, it's not like running or something like that where you're going to hurt your knees, you're going to hurt your, your ankle or something like that. So yeah, it's as, as you get older, if you like dancing, it's a really good thing to do. Dane, how can people connect with you and where can they find you online? Okay, so I, I do have a website, danamckenzie.com. And uh, I don't know if you can, I, I could spell it out. The main thing is McKenzie has an A in it. Yeah. So I actually have a, a blog about chess. So if you're interested in chess and willing to just read about that, it's uh, Dana, at uh, mckenziecom slash blog. But probably most of your listeners aren't, aren't that into it. But, well, uh, the, the uh, Netflix show, uh, what was it called? Queen's Gambit seemed to have mm-hmm. ignited a lot of... Yes, uh, yes, it, it, people it did. Know. And uh, yeah, I even got to write an article for the New York, New York Times sort of inspired by that because uh, there was a... Uh, this article was about a, a woman who is the three-time blind, U.S. blind champion. Oh, wow. And... I thought it was really interesting that here's this woman who is a national champion. And, you know, there's a TV show about a fictional woman being the national champion. Here's a real one. And mm-hmm. uh, so I, I wrote an article about her, which was really well received. A lot of people were moved by that. And, and so that, that was a, a great experience. Yeah, well, and, I'll definitely link to all of that right there in yeah. the show notes. So for everyone that's interested, definitely yeah. check the show notes out. You'll see all those links there. Dana, thank you so much for taking time out of sure. schedule to come on the show. Appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for your patience. Because I know that I tend to go on and on and on. But uh, that's just me. So. Duh. Well, I absolutely love it. Nobody's, okay. tuning, nobody's tuning in to hear me talk. They're, they're <laughs> tuning in to hear, hear, hear my guests talk. So thank you. Okay. Thank you.